It's been two months since the death of African-American man George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis. In the United States, the Black Lives Matter movement has focused specifically on police brutality enacted against African-American communities. But here in Australia, it has resonated with a number of different groups and issues, including police violence against black youth, abuse, negligence, Indigenous deaths in custody and systemic racial bias. Tony McAvoy, SC, has been a barrister since 2000 and senior counsel since 2015. He currently chairs the New South Wales Bar Association First Nations Committee and is a member of the New South Wales Bar Indigenous Joint Working Party on Over-Incarceration. He was also co-senior counsel assisting the Dondale Royal Commission. Tony, welcome back to Speaking Out. Yes, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Larissa. What are your reflections on the events of the past few months since the death of George Floyd? Um, Apart from being heartened by the response from people all across the community to uh, this problem that has plagued Aboriginal and black people of colour all around the world for for many, many decades, I was uh, interested to note the responses of the various uh, governments to what was being said and and called for. In particular, I note that in New South Wales, the police minister seems to be opposed to any uh, rallies and and marches, whereas in other places we are witnessing uh, around the world that the police are kneeling and and, showing solidarity with protesters. So that's been interesting to observe. Were you surprised that a death in the United States of a a black man in the circumstances of George Floyd shone such a light on the issue in Australia? I was surprised by the number of people that turned out, yes. There was a a weekend in June when there were marches and uh, rallies nationally and the turnout was really sensational. We haven't seen that sort of support for the Aboriginal over-incarceration and death in custody issues uh, before, I, I don't think. Do you have any thoughts about what needs to be done to ensure the momentum of this issue isn't lost? As you say, that's, a, that's an unprecedented level of support for those issues in Australia, it feels like. Yes, well, I, I think that we need to continue to have the rallies and protests and we can, need to continue to present to the community in, a, in, a, in the mainstream media the ongoing issues that are arising. But we also need to be able to discuss and articulate for the broader community the ways in which they can be involved and the, the outcomes that we really want. And much of that work was done in the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and the uh, 329 recommendations that came out of that report in that there's been a, a strong call for people to uh, and governments to renew their focus on those recommendations and to ensure that they're well uh, implemented. The most recent uh, example of a, of a government taking some notice of halfway with Aboriginal people uh, treated as a, is the recent statement by the Attorney General in Western Australia in relation to the uh, arrest of uh, a woman by the name of uh, Kira Ronan. Um, she's a mother who attended at the uh, response to, to by the court and she was arrested and strip searched and cavity searched 
and kept in, in uh, the lock-up overnight because she couldn't attend court on the day she was supposed to give evidence uh, about having been the victim of domestic violence. She was in hospital at the time and she rang the court and told them that she couldn't attend. The police started the matter up to issue a bench warrant for her. The magistrate issued the bench warrant and she found out about it and presented herself at the police station and was treated in this abhorrent manner. The Attorney-General in Western Australia took a uh, step, and, uh, and it's not something you often hear from an Attorney-General. He, he made the observation that if this woman, who was an Aboriginal woman, had been a white mother from one of the more affluent suburbs of uh, Cottesloe or, or the similar suburbs, this would never have happened. In his view, uh, can only be put down to the fact that and having people in important uh, positions, such as the Attorney General in, in Western Australia, making those sorts of remarks, uh, shows that I think the, the marches and the protests and the whole Black Lives Matter movement is having some impact. It seems that one thing that comes into focus when there are deaths in custody is the behaviour of individual police or individual individuals working in the prison system. But those people come from the wider community and so their attitudes are reflective of broader societal attitudes. How do you think we can change those broader community attitudes? In my view at least within the government agencies, we have to demand that it is driven from the top down. It has to be something that the ministers, the police ministers and the justice ministers uh, subscribe to and the correctors and the juvenile justice ministers. And they have to ensure that in the, in the job descriptions of the heads of those agencies, the Commissioner for Police and the Commissioner for Corrective Services, that a program of ensuring fair and equitable treatment is implemented. Otherwise, I think we, we're just going to continue on with the situation where a degree of racism, whether it's overt or casual or, or embedded institutional racism, just continues to occur. And so we need to be in a position where racist jokes in the police station are not tolerated and that there is, an, there is a, an obligation upon other police officers to report that type of behaviour. We need to ensure that the systems by which uh, Aboriginal children are arrested and brought before the courts are ones which are fair and take into account the circumstances of, of those children and their families. Tony, as conversations around Black Lives Matter and First Nations Lives Matter movements, there is talk of the justice reinvestment programs and the concept of defunding the police. What are your thoughts and are those proposals realistic? I think they're absolutely realistic. The justice reinvestment programs have been implemented in various locations around the world and there is a trial way in Western New South Wales and Burke for a number of years. And the, that program has been reviewed and it has been shown, shown to make considerable uh, savings for the government in, in economic terms, but it has reduced the rate of offending. It has increased school attendance rates. And um, on the whole, it has been an extraordinary success. And that program seems to me to be the mechanisms which really takes to heart and fulfills the promise of community-led responses to 
and, and that's really what people are asking for. They're, uh, all around the country, people are saying, Look, we know what we can do to um, to work with our kids and our young people and the people who are in trouble. And we just need to be able to do that. And it seems to me that the criminal justice system in Australia is resistant to that. And one of the examples of the resistance, I suppose, is that this program, which seems by all accounts very, uh, very positive in its results, it hasn't been extended. Yet, um, on the other side of New South Wales, northeastern New South Wales, we've just been told of the largest prison in Australia being built for some 1,700 inmates. And it seems entirely um, inconsistent to spend that amount of money on a new jail when there are cheaper, more cost-effective options that are better and create healthier communities. Uh, so I, the settings are all wrong, as, as far as I can see, and that goes to the top level of government. The co-senior counsel assisting the Dondale Royal Commission. So I was wondering if you could share with us your thoughts on what are better strategies for dealing with Aboriginal young people who are at risk of contact with the criminal justice system and how we can avoid that contact in the first place. There's been a, a huge call for, from the Aboriginal community for resources to be able to engage in, in what's called in, in the justice circles, early intervention programs, so that programs that are designed to help create healthy communities and healthy families and help families deal with um, the things that they might be dealing with to create uh, healthy environments for children. And a great amount of international research indicates that, that if you are prepared to invest in community, then the results for the children who are in vulnerable situations are that they don't tend to get into the justice system as often or as early. The statistics tell us that once involved in the justice system, once they've been to court or been to juvenile detention, the likelihood of proceeding on to is very high. But if you can keep them out of the justice system, that eventually many of these children will grow out of the fold and, and continue on to have successful lives that, in which they are able to make a great contribution. Um, at the moment, we're, we seem to be intent on punishing children, and that was certainly the observation in the Northern Territory Royal Commission, that the whole system seemed to be geared towards punishment and retribution rather than treating the situation in the Northern Territory as one which was a, a community and a social issue with, with a, a whole array of medical overlays. Tony, I've been asking you big sweeping questions tonight and I guess my final question is just as sweeping, but I know you've thought a lot about treaties and the pathway forward. What are your reflections on how they might relate to these criminal justice system issues that we've been discussing tonight? Yes, well, the whole thrust of Aboriginal empowerment really is about self-determination. Treaties are just one aspect of that. It seems to me from looking overseas that treaties have the capacity, if they contain all the appropriate elements, to provide for a level of self-determination and self-governance, which is consistent with and empowering to Aboriginal self-determination. So in British Columbia, treaty nations that have entered treaties have 
certain jurisdiction over matters uh, affecting their lands and and their peoples. And they have, in a number of those treaties, uh, a substantial role in the decisions around child protection. Just having that greater role in in Australia, I think, um, make a huge difference. The treaty process, though, is is one of the number, but it certainly is one that I am a strong advocate for because it allows us to negotiate the control of the outcome. One of the recent occurrences in the United States is the Supreme Court decision in the McGirt matter in which the uh, Supreme Court of the US found that the United States government needed to be held to its word in respect of the creation of the Native American reservation in eastern, eastern Oklahoma. And there has been all of this media about what's going to happen now. How is it all going to work? Is everybody going to lose their land? Are we, are we going to have all these, uh, these developments that have been going on in the legal? And the Native American leaders have been very careful to say we have already been discussing the consequences of this decision should it be handed down the way we anticipated it would. And we see that there will be a shared jurisdiction with the United States and with the state of Oklahoma. And and by shared jurisdiction, they mean having the right to make decisions about land and people. And that is really the essence of what treaties are about. And I um, look forward to the day when my people are making the decisions according to our agreement or agreements with the government about our land. Tony, thank you so much for being with us this evening and sharing your considerable legal knowledge and insights on these very complex issues. It's been my pleasure, Larissa. Tony McAvoy is one of the country's leading native title barristers and the country's first Indigenous silk.